one of the things I did was I reached out to Oksana and I said, could I come and cook with you? And that became an every Friday ritual that I clung onto as a kind of branch to shore. It became something to look forward to, something to organize my days around, because without it, you can't get out of bed. But when you know that people are counting on you, you know that people are waiting for you, you know that you're going to be imposing on people, you get yourself out of bed and you go. And really, that cooking together was the beginning not only of Savage Feast, it was also the beginning of a far greater attachment to cooking, which now, in my life, is far more central than it was. Hi, and welcome to The Big Schmear, the podcast celebrating Jewish food, culture, and history. I'm your host, Beth Schenker. It's summer, we're still in a pandemic, and even with many business openings, many uncertainties remain. Thankfully, the one thing that is still here for many of us is the act of cooking and sharing food. It's an important way to ground us and help us feel comforted, I think. So thinking about Jewish food and food in general, I wanted to bring an important story to all of you. I have invited Boris Fishman to be my guest today. He is the author of three books, and we're going to talk about his memoir, Three Generations, Two Continents, and A Dinner Table, Savage Feast. It's a memoir with recipes. For those of you who participated in the Great Big Jewish Food Fest, you may have had a chance to see Boris on your screen when he participated in a presentation on Soviet Jewish cuisine. No worries, though. You'll get to listen in on our conversation right now. Hi, Boris, and welcome to the Big Schmear. Hi, Beth. It's great to talk to you. Thanks for joining me. Since the pandemic, I've been asking my guests to talk a little bit about how life is for them in this uncertain time. It seems that no matter where people are located, rules and situations are are different. So I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about where you are and how you and your family might be affected by the pandemic. We've been fortunate in that we haven't had any health issues. No one in the family was uh, on the front line, so we didn't have those concerns. And I happen to love cooking, so even that (laughs) part of it is not frustrating. Um, We, until very recently, lived in New York, and so I guess we're very lucky to have had some friends around the country who could temporarily host us as we fled the epicenter. But when you have a an infant, uh, I guess she's no longer an infant, she's a toddler. 17 months, that's a toddler, right? That is definitely a toddler. Yeah, well, she's certainly acting up like a toddler. When you have a toddler, uh, switching places every four to six weeks is a bit challenging, especially without childcare. So that part of it has been the hardest for us, keeping in mind, of course, that it's a pretty, pretty lucky situation to be in, to have people to flee to and, and generally to be healthy and safe. But it's definitely definitely made it hard for us. Yeah, it's a challenge for everybody. And I think trying to figure out the best way to um, minimize the challenges is the way to go. And for many of us, food is that way. And so, you know, this is the right podcast to be talking about that. I do find that even more than ever, the ritual of cooking, eating together, even cleaning up, just the regularity of it, uh, the community of it, the fact that you do it roughly at the same time with the same people, now you have to do it with the same people. It's very meaningful. Yeah, it is. I want to jump into your book, and I thought it might be helpful for us to give a little context to at least the start of your story, which is the root of the book. And so could you talk a little bit about where you were born and how you came to the U.S.? 
Yeah, I was born in what was then the Soviet Union. Now it's a you know, independent country called Belarus. I'm from Minsk, which is the capital. And the reason we're here is because my family wanted to save me from the discrimination that they faced as Jews in the Soviet Union. It was a very particular kind of discrimination. It was different from the generations that, sorry, the discrimination that previous generations of Jews had faced, but they did not want me to experience it. You know, it ranged from physical abuse to professional discrimination. And so you had people like my father, who was exceptionally talented in certain areas, who couldn't advance in them because of his religion. What added hurt to this was how hypocritical the system was. The system advertised itself as a kind of egalitarian socialist paradise, but in practice, it was the very opposite. And so sometimes there's a little bit of dignity attached at least to being told the discriminatory truth to your face, but my father couldn't even get that when he was turned away from his uh, attempts to gain employment. Uh, there was always some made-up reason that had nothing to do with the truth. And so living in that kind of system really corrodes your soul. It really makes you a cynic. I had family members who had figured out ways to get around these issues, provide for the family through illegal means, which felt completely justified considering the ways the system had hobbled people like Jews. But nobody wanted me to have to go through the same, and so the decision was made to try to leave. Of course, all of this would have been meaningless were it not possible to leave. Starting in the 1960s and really much more so in the 1970s, the United States was uh, accepting Soviet Jewish refugees. And without going into the politics of that, though the politics of that were absolutely fascinating, we were able to uh, come here in 1988. I was born in 79, and we tried to leave then. It was thwarted for various geopolitical reasons. We were stuck for nine years. And in 1988, we finally managed to get out. And for me personally, that was very significant because I left the Soviet Union as a nine-year-old rather than as a just-born baby. So I had nine years of, of cultural experience in that place imprinted on me once we got here. And that has been very, has been a great determinant in terms of who I am uh, and who I've been all these years. 31 years later, I remain very much a Soviet boy and a Soviet man in many ways, uh, rather than an American one. And that has to do with how much time I think I spent there before we left. And then, of course, how Soviet the house and the household remain even after you get to America because of how insular that environment is, how close-knit the family is. Um, and so that continued to leave that kind of imprint for a very long time. America didn't get its chance until I reached my 20s and moved out of my parents' home. And that makes sense. And I, I'm guessing you still feel like you're the in-between person, like you're the translator between that old Soviet life and the life in America, which I think that would be a really difficult place to be, sort of jumping on either side of the road when it makes the most sense, or sometimes maybe you have no control over being on the other side of the road. I, I think it's difficult. That, that, that's right. And I think uh, even the most well-meaning people don't really understand the psychological difficulty and frustration of being divided between two things unless they've gone through it themselves. Uh, because exactly like you said, um, whenever everyone's on that side of the road, you're on this one. And when you're on that one, everyone's on this one. When you're with Russians, you feel American, or you, you at least find yourself explaining America to the Russians. When you're with Americans, you feel very Russian they're very perplexed as to the things that concern many Americans, the, the, the issues that, that sort of roil this country. Sometimes it's very difficult to connect to for somebody with my experiences. 
sort of building on that, when you came to this country, as you said, you were a young boy, you also had to learn English really quickly because you were in school now, and you became that translator, um, literally, for your family. So that put you in a, a new position of power that you probably didn't experience when you were in the Soviet Union. And I'm sure that's led to other... <laughs> interesting th issues that you've needed to deal with. And I'm wondering, so you've learned English quite well, um, as we all know, you're an author, but where did your passion for writing come in? And Because that is a big leap with learning that second language and then having it be the language that you communicate in a book or books. And so how difficult was that a choice to make? And where did that passion come from? I was entering the world with a lot of stories. A lot of very dramatic things had happened to our family that I was witness to, referring to immigration. And then as I became a little bit older, I began to mine my family history for school assignments and things like that. And my family's history is as vivid and vibrant and visceral as any Soviet Jewish family's existence in that country. It, just, it, it was the very opposite of a humdrum daily existence. I mean, there were always bizarre adventures that were specific to that culture and society that really resonated with American readers because of how different they were. Mm -hmm. And then you add to that the fact that I did become this ambassador for the family. I did find myself speaking and explaining and expressing and representing on a very regular basis to everyone from immigration officials to credit card company representatives to doctors to whomever you want. There was just this reality in our family that when Boris was speaking, the adults didn't interfere, right? I think there are many families where the child or the children are perhaps loved, but not exactly listened to. In my family, I was listened to, which is a great gift that parents can give a child. Of course, if it goes too far, you end up spoiling a child. We had particular circumstances to explain why I was speaking so much. But basically, I was given the sense by my, by my family that the things I wanted to say were worth hearing. And I think that's very valuable confidence for somebody who is starting to think about being a writer. Because one of the greatest anxieties that a writer is working with is like, why should anyone care what I have to say? It takes a lot of chutzpah to decide that your scribblings should be in print and try to reach, you know, thousands of readers. So those factors combined, I think, to give me a push. And I think the fourth and most important factor, by the way, which I'm still struggling with to this day, uh, and I'm struggling with it. I'm having to struggle with it because of how little the writing life pays in America, is I really tried to do everything else that I could. I really did. My family expected me to do something much more traditional and lucrative. I wanted to please them. I myself was scared of taking on this line of work. And I really tried to do a lot of different stuff. And I hated all of it. I could not get through the day <laughs> doing the other things I tried to do. And so eventually I gave in and gave myself over to this very risky, very non-lucrative uh, line of work that nonetheless is extremely, the best way I can put it is I never look at the clock. So I wanted to talk a little bit about your memoir, of course, and you have the ability to kind of bring us into your story from the very beginning in the prologue where you start drawing those characters, those important people in your life, your family. And one of the people that we meet in the very beginning is Oksana, your grandfather's home aide. And we find out about the important role she has played in your family in 
many ways, but particularly her expertise in the kitchen. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how Oksana first came into your family. Yes. So uh, just so your listeners know, Oksana is the home aide, um, the home attendant who helped take care of my grandfather until he passed away. Um, And she came into his life after my grandmother passed away in 2004. And basically, if you were a political refugee, uh, one of the benefits of that experience is you qualify for home care benefits with the city of New York. And that's why my grandmother, who was terminally ill, was eligible, despite not having contributed a very great deal to the tax base in her life. And then my grandfather was able to acquire the same benefit after she passed. And Oksana is one of these very, very many people from those parts of the former Soviet Union that have not emerged with strong economies, whose people go abroad to find better paying work. And sometimes the most usable skill they can offer is their own bodies, hands, and minds, by which I mean they take care of elderly people in other countries. But it helps if those elderly people share their language. Right? It would have been very hard for Oksana to take care of somebody who wasn't Russian-speaking. And my grandfather, who managed to go through 30 years in this country without learning English, would have been very hard for him to say to have somebody, say, from the Caribbean taking care of him. I say that because there are many Caribbean home nurses in, in New York as well. And she showed up in his life when he had just lost my grandmother. And he showed up in her life shortly after she had left the Ukraine. Now, imagine. You live in a regional city in Western Ukraine, 250,000 people. You have never essentially left Ukraine other than to go to Poland, which is very near, to try to barter some things or sell some things in order to make some money after the Soviet Union has collapsed. Maybe you've gone to Turkey to sell some rugs, Bulgaria, whatever. These have been very utilitarian trips. And then all of a sudden you come to America. And America, in your mind, has been this magical powerful, innovative place where people walk around with confidence and wealth and just a certain kind of dazzle and magnificence. But instead, you arrive in South Brooklyn. Very different than the dream. (laughs) South Brooklyn is a very ugly place, especially if you get there at a certain time of year, such as the fall, the winter, most of the spring and most of the summer. (laughs) It's not a particular, it's, it's a homely place. And I understand that it has a kind of rough authenticity that many people after decades of living there fall in love with and consider their own. That's different from magnificence and dazzle and magic and mystery. Um, I think she was quite depressed to be there. She was exceptionally lonely. She didn't speak the language. She left behind children. And then one other thing, which I think is very important, is Oksana, her whole life, has been this really unusual example of a kind of female Soviet schizophrenia, and I use that term metaphorically. Oksana herself is an incredibly resourceful, creative, productive, efficient, hardworking woman. But her only dream in her life when it comes to love and romance and marriage has been to find a man who would be that much more resolute and that much more resourceful and would take care of her. And it's, it's a very common aspiration among ex-Soviet women not a particularly feminist one, but you've never met women who've been less interested in feminism than many women who come out of the Soviet experience. And her curse in life had been to meet men who just never met that profile, never met that character profile. And so I think she was very lonely in life. And then 
in meeting my grandfather, th- their relationship was not romantic at all, but it didn't need to be. In meeting my grandfather, she joined lives because, you know, she was 24-7. She lived with him. She joined lives with a man who was incredibly chivalrous, incredibly resourceful, incredibly gregarious, right? He was the man whom I referred to earlier as having managed to provide a dignified living for us in the Soviet Union through all kinds of shady deals on the black market. Now, you could criticize those deals all you want. It takes courage and it takes chutzpah, right, to try Mm -hmm. to go around the Soviet government, which wasn't into leniency for acts like these, um, in order to make these things happen. And so in their small ways in South Brooklyn, he continued to do what he'd been doing in the Soviet Union. And she found in him a companion who, in his own very platonic way, took care of her, right? Something as small as asking her to come with him to a very humble Chinese bakery on 86th Street and to buy her a bun and a coffee, right? It takes so little, except I guess the men she knew had never troubled themselves to do that, and he did, right? They, they might go out to go grocery shopping together, and the first place he would go is to the flower aisle, and come back with flowers for her, you know, mm. things like that. Yeah. And so at a time in their lives when both of them were feeling, I think, incredibly disoriented and lonely because he'd been married to my grandmother for 55 years, they became the unlikeliest and the most meaningful companions to each other. And, you know, add to this the fact that she's Christian, he's Jewish. These are people who did not maintain very close relationships in the Soviet Union Oksana comes from a city in western Ukraine that was essentially, a, a because it was on the railway to Poland, it was a way station for the transport of Soviet Jews to the concentration camps. And so her city used to be 65% Jewish. Now there's not a single Jewish inhabitant of it. It's a history that weighs very heavily on the place, but of course nobody talks about it. And so all these factors combine to make an incredibly rich, complex, meaningful relationship. But here's the thing. There's nothing in American life, nothing in American journalism, nothing in American fiction, nothing in American nonfiction, where you're likely to encounter a well-plumbed description of this relationship. Mm -hmm. Just for some reason, something about this does not seem important to the American public. And a lot of the things that seem important to the American public don't seem important to me. This seems important to me. And so their relationship for me was, was, was the seed of what eventually became seven years later, Savage Feet. Ah, it's a beautiful relationship and uh, one that I loved reading about. So I think I'm correct, of course you'll correct me if I'm wrong, that you first started cooking with Oksana, who, by the way, has the most creative way of cooking. She, I mean, her foods are just amazing. Your mouth will water as you even look at the recipes. And there are no pictures in the book, only the pictures that you conjure up in your own mind of this food. So, But I'm gonna kind of getting ahead of myself. So tell me when you started cooking with Oksana and what, what that was like. Yeah, it's, it's one of my favorite things to talk about, and it's one of my favorite parts of the book. It also happens to be the most difficult part of, part of the book. Difficult in the sense of what the experience in life was like for me. Basically, you know, Oksana gave this gift to my grandfather through her presence and through her care and through her companionship, but she also gave a great gift to me in that her cooking was so phenomenal that that it made me want to go to my grandfather's house much more than I wanted to at the time. 
we referred briefly to this early period of immigration where I've given these powers of representation and translation and ambassadorship. But it's a very stressful gift to be given because no one in your family understands how important all of these new family tasks are, figuring out which insurance to have, figuring out which credit card to buy, filing this paperwork for this benefit, et cetera, et cetera. And so to err on the side of caution, everybody assumes that every one of them is a life or death experience. And so in representing the family through them, you're just carrying a, a lot of responsibility and worry about not getting the right outcome. And when you spend 10 years of your life feeling nothing but that from, from 10 to 20, let's say, when you do emerge from that experience, you know, your parents are slightly more fluent, they can make more calls themselves, you're busy with college, et cetera, you become very angry at the fact that you did not have a childhood because you spent it stressed and anxious about whether you are managing to haul four adults on your back adequately into American culture. Um, and then you add to that the fact that I was really souring on the culture I was coming from because America, American culture in so many ways is the diametrical opposite of Soviet culture. And I was living inside a contradiction, like we referred kind of abstractly to this experience of being divided between cultures. But let me give you a concrete example. I was brought to this country to achieve things in the American way. There's no way to achieve things in the American way without taking risks. There's nothing less Soviet than taking risks. And the people in your family whom you remain very close to, they want you to achieve in the American way, but they want you to do it through Soviet means because they remain Soviet people and it's what makes sense to them. And whenever you try to reconcile that contradiction in your mind, you get very confused. And they certainly don't have the power intellectually or psychologically to understand the contradiction and steer you through it. You have zero parental guidance as you try to make your way in this country. And it all adds up to a very confusing cocktail that leaves you with a lot of resentment um, for these people who want impossible things from you, who become disappointed and punitive when you don't do things the Soviet way, and also become disappointed and punitive when you don't achieve in the American way. And I think there's a very fine tradition of young American people saying, well, screw all that. I'm off to the other end of the country. I'm off abroad. And that's just not the way it works in our culture. The cost of that would be tearing my family's hearts apart. So I wanted less and less of them. I wanted less and less of my culture. Uh, and it was right around this time that Oksana started putting on my grandfather's table what she started putting on my grandfather's table. And it was phenomenal. It was unfamiliar because Ukrainian cooking is very different from Belarusian cooking. Ukraine is much farther to the south, so very different ingredients and different techniques. And it became a way to go down there and focus on something other than the issues dividing us. And I think with time, I even began to joke with Oksana about how what a great business idea it was to open up a Ukrainian cafe because there was no Ukrainian cafe serving updated, modernized, contemporary, American-friendly food outside of South Brooklyn. And Oksana is not interested in entrepreneurship. She comes from a culture that's all about stable, predictable earnings. So that was never going to fly. So this, this issue just kind of hung in the air. And then for reasons that I describe in the book, I experienced a really intense emotional devastation several years ago. It had to do with, with the failure of a particular relationship, which occurred on the heels of several such failures of promising and hopeful romantic relationships. And you have to understand the kind of uh, disappointment 
that somebody produced by Soviet culture feels when you're nearing your 40s and you're still unattached, no children on the horizon, etc. And I think that when I was looking for ways to climb out of my hole, and it really was a hole, it was an episode of clinical depression, I couldn't get out of bed. One of the things I did was I reached out to Oksana and I said, could I come and cook with you? And that became an every Friday ritual that I clung onto as a kind of branch to shore. It became something to look forward to, something to organize my days around, because without it, you can't get out of bed. But when you know that people are counting on you, you know that people are waiting for you, you know that you're going to be imposing on people, you get yourself out of bed and you go. And really, that cooking together was the beginning not only of Savage Feast, it was also the beginning of a far greater attachment to cooking, which now in my life is far more central than it was. And uh, I'm speaking to you from a place that my family has just relocated to where I've received a teaching job. But if I hadn't gotten that teaching job, it really was my plan which the pandemic also interfered with, to spend the coming fall apprenticing at a restaurant. There's actually one restaurant in America that produces very modernized take on Russian food. It's a restaurant called Kochka in Portland. And I'm, I'm friendly with the owner, Bonnie Morales. And Bonnie was going to host me for a, what they call a stage, a several-month stage in the kitchen at Kochka so that I could professionalize what I've been working on in, in my home kitchen now for a couple of years. Wow. And so we met, uh, or I met Bonnie virtually during that amazing online conference. And so I didn't realize that that was part of your plan. And I, hopefully it will happen at another time. Because, yes. yeah, what a great experience for not just for you, but for the people who would enjoy your food. And I'm not sure that people realize how important it was for you. I mean, you did talk about how much it meant to start cooking with Oksana and how that changed your life. But you didn't just cook with her. You began to really look at those recipes and test them out. And you also worked in a restaurant from dishwashing to cooking. And so it's interesting to me that that's the place you found to be your home. And I, I think it says a lot about you, but also about our time right now, even that that that's so important. That's right. You know, I think I say it well in the book. I'm, I'm pleased with that passage where I, I sort of alighted on the reason why I think cooking is so deeply satisfying for those people who uh, are connected to it. And it's like you literally turn nothing into sustenance, right? Sustenance is the most ancient human need, no matter how futuristic we become, how many gadgets we have, how many technological shortcuts we invent, we still need to eat several times a day. Um, and you cannot eat a raw potato and be well, but you can eat a cooked potato and be well. It's actually a matter of survival. And so for me, there's something incredibly satisfying at being able to turn something that, you know, to, to make, to turn zero into a form of sustenance for people I care about. There's something I think very ancient about being able to provide nourishment to people you love and to give them pleasure and joy while you're at it. These are things I think that transcend language and understanding. It's just it's sort of, it's as hardwired in us as the biological drive to have children for some people, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and learning to cook with Oksana, I, I don't want to describe it as some romantic experience. I think Oksana was unaccustomed to having something, someone at her elbow she was unaccustomed to having to articulate what she was doing while she was doing it. Because as I can now attest, when you're cooking, the last thing you enjoy is interruptions and questions and distractions. Then there was the matter of translating all of her 
very non-concrete and non-mathematical measurements into actual numbers, translating those from Ukrainian to Russian, translating those from, from metric to imperial is quite a process to get from the experience of cooking together to publishing a book about it. Those recipes are exacting, and nothing that she was doing was exacting. She built up her hand over, as any family cook listening to your podcast will know, the more you cook, the more of an instinct you develop for how many times you need to bin the salt grinder when you're caramelizing onions versus making turkey burgers versus salting pasta, right? It's just, it's instinctive, right? Mm -hmm. Eight turns for this one, 12 turns for this one. Like you don't think about it. It was the same with her. She knew this much sugar for this kind of salad, this much flour for this kind of dumpling. And to ask her, well, how many grams is that? <laughs> that wasn't always an easy conversation. And it is also true that at around the same time, I lucked into a position as a, as a prep cook in, in a Russian restaurant on the Lower East Side. And that was as instrumental as cooking with Oksana was in helping me to emerge from the state that I was in. Because what I needed most of all was to shut off my brain. And there's no better way to shut off your brain than to make your body very busy and there's no better way to make your body very busy than to put it in the back of a restaurant where from 2 p.m. to midnight, you don't stop for a second and you sweat out gallons of sweat <laughs> because you're running from one thing to another. Because first you got lunch rush, and then you got prep, you got dinner rush, you got cleanup. It was the best way to not think about myself for, for 10 hours. And we're all the beneficiaries, so that's pretty cool. What came first, the idea about the book or the f knowing that you were going to do f recipes and food? Like, was it ever going to be a cookbook or do you know what I mean? Yes, I do. It, it, it went through a lot of iterations. And the first iteration was the one I hinted at earlier, which is I wanted to write a book about Oksana and my grandfather's relationship. I'm a novelist. I wanted to write it novelistically, a, a book that would technically be true, but would have sort of the, the sweep and evolution and character development and plot development and narrative arc and dialogue of a novel. But that idea didn't, re didn't resonate with my publisher. My publisher found that idea too small and wanted me to try to make it bigger. And the next idea that I had, oh, I'm sorry, this was the second iteration. The first iteration is exactly what you say. I wanted to do a Ukrainian cookbook with Oksana. And I was told that I, again, by my publisher, that I didn't really have a platform to write a cookbook. I, I, I didn't have a brand. I didn't have a TV show. I didn't have a blog. There wasn't a built-in audience. Of course, now you're seeing a real, I think, ex-Soviet food is blowing up. I think you've got beautiful cookbooks finally coming out left and right. Bonnie's cookbook for Kochka. There is a Ukrainian-British chef. Her name is Olya Hercules, and she published a really beautiful cookbook called Mamoshka. Uh, there's Dara Goldstein, who just published Beyond the North Wind. These are just these are gorgeous cookbooks that feature food from that part of the world and help you realize not only how awesome it actually is, but actually how of the moment it is because of how heavily foraging is involved, because of how nose to tail it is, all these things that sort of have been celebrated in American cooking. We had them long before um, <laughs> the Americans became interested in them once more. And so that was my idea several years ago. And it just didn't resonate. The next iteration was Oksana and Arkady, their story that also didn't resonate. And then I was invited by my publisher to think about my own relationship to food so that it could become a broader, bigger story. Um, and at first I resisted. I didn't think I had a relationship to food. But once I thought about it, I realized that many of the pivotal moments in my family's life and my own had something to do 
with food that was uncasually procured and uncasually prepared. And so that's why I say it took five years to arrive at the final concept and then two years to finally write it. A big project, uh, yes, for sure. always. Yeah. <laughs> so I know that you're exploring Judaism as an important piece for your life moving forward, and I wonder how you think Russian food will play a role in this, in your exploration of Jewish life. Well, I have, I have nothing but the utmost curiosity about and interest in Jewish life, but by this point, I think I have to admit, concede, that there's not one inch of me that is sort of, um, what's the right way to put it? I guess the Soviet imprint, cultural imprint, here's one example of how heavy it can be. Despite decades of trying, I've just never been able to interest myself in observance and in the religious part of it. I dated somebody who was modern Orthodox for eight years still. I do understand that sort of the religious experience is what waters the cultural experience. You can't be a cultural Jew without somebody somewhere being religious, because I think the culture is what the religion throws off um, in, its, in its experiences and struggles. Somebody in the bloodline has to have been religious for you to be a cultural Jew, and I don't forget that. That said, I'm not uh, an observant human being. That said, I do want to preserve a role for Jewish history, culture, life, humor, food, literature in my life, especially now that we have a daughter who is only half Jewish. And so it's doubly important for me to make sure she knows that background. And honestly, I'm looking forward to sharing those experiences with her because they will involve me learning a lot of things for the same time. I mean, I have so very many gaps in my Jewish education and knowledge. So I look forward to having that experience together. As to how Russian food will be involved, I mean... You know, one, <laughs> there's no use avoiding the subject. Russian food is full of pork, and that tends to be shocking or at least strange to Jewish American audiences. But it shouldn't be if you just understand that it just, it just was not invested with the same significance in the Soviet Union and also in a country where there's often not enough to eat. You eat what you get. So that part of it is not going to play a lot, play a large role in my sort of Jewish American experience. But there are all these dishes. For example, we all know kasha varnishkas, right? Buckwheat and bow tie pasta, caramelized onions. Of course. Um, what was very interesting for me was to realize that Aksana had been cooking this dish for a very long time without ever understanding its Jewish origin, right? So there are many stories like that in Savage Feast that I was interested to learn about and certainly continue to play a role in my kitchen. And then one of the great things about kasha varnishkas is like it's, it's a 15-minute dish, right? When you don't have time, 15-minute dish. Weeknight dinner... There you go. Absolutely. If you, happen to be, if you happen to be vegetarian, there you go. Now, from Aksana, I learned a dish that is as Ukrainian as Ukrainian gets, and I'll describe it to you in a second, but it also happens to be a 15-minute dish. It is also the perfect weeknight dinner. It is also vegetarian. And so for me, the two dishes develop a connection, a relationship. They sort of get filed into, into the same category. And so as a result, because of the way the mind works, the Ukrainian dish takes on Jewish overtones because they just, they're, they're siblings, these dishes. It's not very logical or factual, but I don't care. And so I think it's through this kind of intersection and cross-pollination that you sort of develop Jewish associations where you didn't have them before. Uh, the dish is, is basically, uh, it's called banish. You take um, cornmeal, finely ground cornmeal, and you cook it not in water, but in dairy. 
in, in a combination of milk and sour cream, which gives it a really beautiful tang and a lot more heft than you get from cooking it in water. And then you crumble some feta on top and on the side you saute some some mushrooms. You know, the, the wilder you can get, the better, but you know, anything will do. That takes 15 minutes and it's very filling, feeds a family of three very happily, costs nothing. And the reason it's a very Ukrainian recipe is because it's what, so Oksana lives in this part of Western Ukraine at the foothills of the Carpathian Mountains. And the shepherds that would go up with their flocks of sheep into the mountains would bring this cornmeal with them because it didn't spoil and it traveled easily and they could cook it over a campfire. And then the lambs produce the sort of the, 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 they they produce the milk that they use to cook the the cornmeal and and that's what they're made their their feta from too, so they're called the hutsuls. It's sort of a traditional a traditional dish, and I'm very pleased to be cooking it in my Montana kitchen now. <laughs> and you answered my question about Jewish food and Russian food. It's it's all about the diaspora and what Jews do from all over the world about incorporating ingredients into recipes that have been in families for decades, hundreds of years. I was going to quickly say that like, it's, it's a situation where nobody benefits from boundaries. The more you allow dishes to influence each other, the more interesting the relationship becomes and the more allies you build in the kitchen. Uh, I think it's an opportunity for connection across cultural divisions. And I think that has value in all, in all sorts of places outside the kitchen too. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I'm, and I just want to tell listeners that you have been extremely generous and you're sharing a recipe that I'll have on my website for Ukrainian chicken liver pie. You might not think that sounds so great until you see the photograph and then look at the recipe because it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. And so, Boris, if my listeners want to find out more about you, your books, what's the best way for them to find you? The best way to find me is through my website, which is simply enough, uh, borisfishman.com, all is one word. Um, I guess I got on there when it was still possible to snag that without any additions. Um, it has information about all my books. It has uh, all the journalism that I publish. I, I do a lot of personal essay, a lot of travelogue, uh, some reporting, um, all kinds of different pieces. They're all on there as well. A way to get in touch. Uh, you can find all my upcoming readings. Uh, online at this point, but hopefully back to live at some point soon. So, yeah, that's that's the best way to begin, and thank you for asking me that. Oh, of course. And as a fan of your writing for quite a while, it's been so nice for me to have this opportunity to talk with you. I've loved it. Thank you so much for being my guest today. I'm really grateful for your interest, Beth. Thank you for saying that. My recording and mix engineer is Steve Robinson. The Big Schmear theme music is performed by Cavatina Duo from their CD entitled Sephardic Journey on the CD record label. If you like The Big Schmear, please don't forget to subscribe and write a review or share a like on my Facebook group page. And please do tell your friends to listen. It's the best way for my podcast to continue to grow. If you have comments or questions, I'd love to hear from you. Please email me at beth at thebigschmear.com. And be sure to check out my website, thebigschmear.com, to find recipes shared by my guests. I'm Beth Schenker, the host of The Big Schmear. Thank you for listening, and happy eating. <laughs> <laughs>